Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 26, 2016. The share ID for Friday, June 24, is 8863. That's 8863. This morning, A Vision for You presents Words of Inspiration and Education. The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is most often lovingly referred to as a big book, of course, was first published in 1939. Since then, it has sold millions of copies throughout the world and for over seven decades has helped millions of people recover from alcoholism and other addictions. The big book isn't hard to read. It's written in plain, everyday language, and every word of it is practical and down-to-earth. It's not a book of theory or philosophy. It offers a clear, step-by-step approach for your recovery. The big book and the recovery process entailed offers a unique spiritual experience to each one of us, and one's own idea of it may change over time. But one thing seems true. The rewards are freedom, serenity, and an increased joy in living. With us today are seven recovered compulsive overeaters who will bring to life some of the passages that were especially inspirational, impactful, or educational to them along their journey. So let's get started right away with our first speaker, Julie R. from California. Welcome, Julie. Hi, this is Julie R. from California, currently in the Caribbean. So my paragraph is on page eight, the first, the second paragraph. So I'm just going to kind of read it and then I'll, I'll talk about it. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me up for a bit. Then came that insidious insanity of that first drink on Armistice Day, 1934. I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. So for me, when I read that, I could see myself because I was once again in, in that relapse and um, gaining weight rapidly, depressed, fearful. Um, you know, everybody was worried about me. You know, was I going to get it back up to 300 pounds again? What are we going to do? You know, they thought, I mean, I don't know if they thought I was suicidal or what, but I could sit there and see Bill as a broken man where his wife was you know, at her wit's end and everybody around her, it was done and he was going to be locked up. That was me. I was going to go to a treatment center or I was going to go to an insane insanity. But the next section of this is what came alive for me. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debacle. I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So, you know, I get to look at that and it's like, that is how I'm living my life now. I am free. The obsession is totally lifted. Um, I'm like Bill. I, I, I never wanted another drink. I am happy. There's, I can go anywhere. I'm on a seven-day cruise. I'm weighing and measuring all my food. This is that fourth dimension. And, and you know, what is that fourth dimension? The third dimension is the physical awareness, but that fourth dimension is the soul awareness. And when I read that, 
about the fourth dimension and being catapulted into that. I never, ever understood that until the day that I became recovered and I continued to live in 10, 11, and 12. This is so exciting because that last sentence is that in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes, I'm getting close to um, two years of, of complete, you know, sobriety, black and white abstinence, and it's just the beginning, and I am still being catapulted. And, and when I read that, to know that I felt the same way as Bill, and, and there's so many passages in the big book, but that one really got to me, because how dark it was before the dawn. The day that I um, surrendered again, October 22nd, 2014, my bed was riddled with wrappers. I had eaten at least 20,000 calories that day. I had purged. I was crying. I, was, I didn't think I would ever get recovered again. And how dark it is before the dawn. At 8.15 p.m. that night when somebody called me from program, that was the last time I've overeaten. But that's just part of it, that fourth dimension. I mean, my relationship with my husband is healed. My relationship with certain family members are healed. And it's all because of this. I was to know a new happiness, peace, and usefulness. I'm of service to everyone that I come in contact with. Um, This paragraph tells me where my life is, where I was. You know, yeah, the weight loss is great, of course. I mean, I'm a normal body, but it's what my soul has now. And to be able to be free from from that, you know, the four, four horsemen, as they say. But I love to be catapulted into the fourth dimension. My life today is the fourth dimension. Is it perfect? No. But I get to work on it every day. I am. I get to look at my children even when they upset me, and I'm. I could be free. I can pause. I can breathe. I can wait. These are the promises. Every one of us get to have this. So um, I know I, I've only talked five minutes, but there's so much more I could talk about and how I'm free I am today. It's. I can go anywhere and not overeat. Again, like I said, I'm on a cruise ship. Um, there's tons of food everywhere in the hotels. Um, doesn't matter. I bring my scowl with me. I bring my food. I'm free. I don't have to worry about if somebody's going to um, wonder why I'm weighing my food. I don't have to worry about the anger and the frustration that I used to have, the way that I would look at people, the way I would react to people. And it's free because I was so selfish, so self-centered constantly. And today I can stop most of the time and ask my God to come in and help me, relieve me of myself because it's me that's the issue. So for me that hitting bottom was that spiritual bottom. And the only solution is the steps. And that's exactly what, you know, Bill was talking about. He was trembling in the hospital and then asked throughout the rest of the um his story talks about how he took the steps. And he went from a broken man to what he did with Dr. Bob. And I look at me, I couldn't even walk. I was waddling. And I hated life. I hated myself. I would pick a fight with my husband. I was so, so angry. And to be catapulted in that fourth dimension. I mean, I can be around people that make me frustrated but I can still have peace inside me. I, I pray, I ask, bless them, change me. 
it's it's a way of life that I never thought I could have. It's so much more than just being abstinent. That is just the beginning because I could be abstinent and I cannot have sobriety, emotional sobriety. But Bill's talking about emotional sobriety, not white knuckling it, not being on a food plan with group support. It's how I live my life as the authentic Julie. And I, again, I didn't know what authentic Julie was because all I could worry about was how I was going to get my fix. And even at the very beginning of this paragraph, fear sobered him up for a bit, but then he was off again taking that first bite. That was just like me. When I took that first bite, I could not stop. For eight months, I was in my relapse. I had to stop moderating on a vision for you. I had to let go of all my sponsees. How dark it is before the dawn. I now sponsor five people. I uh, pray and meditate. I am able to um, heal relationships. I am able to not act the way I used to because I am no longer that person. And I love what they say about the soul awareness. This program is about finding power. And I found that power by being in that that dark place and then now coming into the light. So with that, I will pass. Thank you for letting me be of service. Thank you very much, Julie R. Let's continue through the text with our next speaker, Janice B. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Janice B., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Vermont. I'm trying to find my my timer here. Here we go. Um, And I want to say, oh, God, thank you for for the recovery that's been given to me from listening to Vision for You from all my sponsors, people who have done service, people who share on their experience, strength, and hope. I'm so grateful to be where I am today to have something to share. So the line that I would like to talk about is on page 36 about Jim, the guy who failed to enlarge his spiritual life and drank again. In retelling what happened, he said, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. What I really relate to is suddenly the thought crossed my mind, and I hope to relate how I've evolved from reacting in fear and powerlessness and having no choice to practicing paying attention to the thoughts that I have and using them to grow and transform. In 2010, after having been in and out of OA for almost 25 years, I was at another low point. And I saw that no matter how I tried to control the food, the thought, the obsession, when the thought crossed my mind to eat something, I I shouldn't. Um, That thought would never stop until I ate. I would always lose. Over and over again, this happened. I got it. I was powerless. I had no choice. So I got the first part of step one. I was powerless over food. I had admitted that many times in my OA career. But this time was different. 
I never really saw or uh, understood the second part of step one, that my life was unmanageable. I was managing very well. Thank you. But this time, I saw that I hadn't managed very well. My life was a mess. The man I had retired from my job for to move to Vermont had left me. I was alone and miserable. I was empty. I couldn't do what I wanted to do, and I did what I didn't want to do. What could I do? OA didn't work. I had tried that. I had been in and out so many times. I could never stay abstinent. I could for a while, but I always picked up. But it was the only thing that had ever worked, and so and I had no place else to go. I was so miserable that I went back, and I looked online, and I found a phone meeting. And I listened in, and someone gave the number for a big book phone meeting that I started listening to. That was God working in my life. I loved this meeting. I heard a different message. People weren't talking about abstinence being the most important thing in their life, but their relationship with God, having a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. I wanted that. I wanted a personality change because I saw who I was, where I was. Here I I was 60 years old, 40 pounds overweight, alone and eating popcorn. I had tried to manage for so many years and look where I was. Did I want to be on this hamster wheel focusing on what I was eating for 20 more years? What a waste of my life. Listening to that meeting, I heard a strong, I heard Strong, recovered, compulsive overeaters delivering a message of hope and possibility that I could have a personality change, that putting the food down was only the beginning, not the goal, that the steps, developing a relationship with God, myself, and others were the way to having that. My obsession to eat was lifted and replaced with an obsession for recovery. Thank you, God. Before this big book meeting, I had studied the steps, but I didn't get, I didn't get, I didn't understand, I didn't understand it. I guess I wasn't ready. I, um, you know, so when the thought crossed my mind, to eat, my reaction was fear and panic. And I'm a self-reliant isolator, so I wasn't very good at picking up the phone and asking for help. I didn't have a power greater than myself. I was alone. When I found this big book meeting, God's grace was working. I had been reading a book where a woman who had never prayed to God, but because of a personal crisis, she prayed and she heard God say to her, I will always love you. I will always take care of you. I will never leave you. And when suddenly the thought crossed my mind, I said those words. 
and I was no longer alone. In the past, I had always looked for a strong sponsor, someone to kick my butt and whip me into shape. I had a relationship with my sponsor, not God. This time, I did not look for a strong sponsor, but looked to the God in me for power. That loving myself was the way. I didn't count the days of abstinence. When my thoughts would go to food or how I looked, I would remind myself that it's not about food. Food was not the answer. Love and connection, what I yearned for, was the answer. It was about a personality change, a change in the way I think, a change in the way I feel, and a change in the way I act. Those words, those words, I will always love you, I will never leave you, I will always take care of you, were powerful for me. And who is that you in those words? She is my true self, the person God wants me to be, not the disconnected, fearful, isolated, hiding, self-reliant woman, but a woman who is learning to be comfortable in her own skin and who is loving and connected to God, myself, and others. So what is this spiritual awakening, this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery? And how does it relate to suddenly the thought crossed my mind? Well, I see that I have a thinking problem. My thinking is skewed. I saw that when I did steps four through nine, especially um, when I was in step four and looked at my beliefs in column three. When Jim thought he could have whiskey, if he put it in milk, that was delusional thinking, kind of an extreme example, and easy to see that it's a, it's a lie. But I have stories about other people that I think I know what they're thinking about who and what's important and what isn't, and about myself that I can't communicate well, that I'm not important, I'm not good enough, that I can't say that, I can't do that, I can't have that, I can't ask that. So many shoulds and shouldn'ts and have-tos, such judgments about myself and others. Who wouldn't want to check out with that, with those kinds of thoughts going through your mind? No, food isn't the problem. Food wasn't the problem. My thinking was the problem. Food was not the answer. The answer was to pay attention to my thoughts, to pay attention to my, to how I was feeling because feelings, my feelings are driven by what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking is based on, on my history, on that, so my thinking is, is based on trying to protect myself and and the character defects that keep me that that keep me separated from and isolated and fearful and um, and disconnected. So I need to look at my thoughts and look at how I'm thinking and pass them through the eyes of my higher power. Like is this 
is this uh, do I re- is this true? Do I really know what that other person is thinking? Is it really true that I don't connect well with other people? Is it really true that I can't communicate? And I found that often those thoughts are not true. And I ask, what, how would God have me be? How would, what would God have me do? And, and it's examining, pausing, pausing and being alert, aware, and awake to my thinking that is, is resulting in this personality change that's resulting in me being able to be on this line right now and sharing with you my experience, strength, and hope. And I am just so grateful. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Janice B. Now let's continue with our next speaker, Judy S. Good morning, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Leah, for this opportunity. And good morning, visionaries. This is Judy F., a compulsive overeater recovered in Massachusetts. So grateful to be here. Really grateful. Um, so my uh, part in the big book that has been so influential, powerful, and has motivated me to work the steps um, is on page 52, often called the bedevilments, starting with we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply our human problems with the same readiness to change our point of view. And my point of view was so skewed um, before I hit a bottom. I'll just let you know, uh, my accident date is July 29th, 1991. And um, right from that date, I got right into working the steps um, out of the big book and the 12 and 12, grateful for that. Um, And so when I, I had hit a bottom and was willing to follow directions then, and I was, um, I had admitted my powerlessness. I could see how food had me. I had tried everything from uh, doctors, medications, all sorts of diets. Um, you name it, I tried it, um, paid for it. Um, and so I, I knew I was powerless. This um, paragraph of the uh, bedevilments, um, it's really the behavior of the unmanageability, uh, second step, second part of uh, the first step. And honestly, I, I didn't think I, my life was that unmanageable um, because in the doctor's opinion, it says we can't decipher the truth from the false. And I definitely, um, in the beginning, when I was still coming off the food, I, I couldn't um, see the truth. And I was in a lot of denial about how bad it was, but I did know um, I would reach the bottom of I couldn't do this alone. So when... Um, I was brought through the book, and we came to this part. This just hit me between the eyes. I, I could not deny um, reading each one about my own behavior, and I identified in with um, the first one. We were having trouble with personal relations. Uh, my friends weren't calling me anymore. I isolated from friends and family, and I was let go of my job. I lost my job. 
the, um, the next one, we couldn't control our emotional natures. Oh, you know what? I need to um, just set my alarm. Uh, okay. I think I just did two minutes. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, we couldn't control our emotional natures. I was clinically depressed. Um, I was on an antidepressant, and then um, they also had me on an anti-anxiety med. So I was just, you know, I was either too low or, or really really high, um, so they had to bring me down with an, an anti-anxiety med. I was a prey to misery and depression. I slept a lot. I had lost my job, so I was um, home a lot. I would go out and get food and just um, eat until I passed out. I stayed a lot in my apartment alone, binging, um, and I had suicidal ideation. And I only, it, at the end, it only got to the point where I went out to see my therapist and if my boyfriend wanted to go out to dinner, of course, you know, the food, I would go out for food. So um, that's how, that was my, my way of life. We couldn't make a living. Well, obviously, I was, I was uh, let go of my job for uh, poor performance um, because I was putting, the, the disease got a hold of me and, and I was um, lying. I was, um, I was in sales and I was making up uh, proposals for um, customers that didn't exist and um so and I was eating and then calling in sick because I was also um doing laxatives and I just couldn't go. Um I we had a feeling of uselessness. All day um I was watching soap operas and Jerry Springer shows, if anyone remembers that. I mean it's just craziness. I was just addicted to um I I was um just all into myself and I was full of fear. I had a fear of looking for a job, a fear of going out of the house. Like I said, I would only go out to get my food or to go to my therapist, um, which was actually a miracle that I, I went was going to her. We were unhappy. Well, I was thinking of myself all the time and how miserable my life was and how um, I was into self-pity a lot and um, just the binging and then regretting that and being in to remorse. And I really saw I had no future. The way I was living, I had no f future. And we couldn't seem to be of real help to anyone. <clears throat> I mean, I used to be helpful to friends and, and my family. I was like the hero child in my family. Well, no one was calling me and I was not, I totally isolated and I did not show up for family functions or for friends. I would say I would show up and then I would um, last minute because I had binged, I wouldn't be in there. So I had to admit I was totally powerless and that motivated me to work the steps because I knew nothing else had, um, worked before. So, um, and that got me into working a very strong program. Um, it took me about a year to go through those, those steps and I made my amends and I had definitely um, a lot of recovery um, and a lot of uh, positive things happened in my life. I, I got a... Um, a job that I had liked, and um, I uh, left it a boyfriend and got um, connected to myself and that sort of thing. But after about 12 years, um, and I, I, I had sponsees, I was finding that um, I was I had been doing um, step work through the OA 12 and 12, the a, just the AA 12 and 12. I got away from um, the big book, and honestly, I was not... I was working, I was doing praying and meditation, um, and I was um, uh, not doing a, 
regular inventory except when we were going through the steps. So once a year, I would have like this four step, but then it wasn't on a daily basis. And um, and it was, I mean, I learned a lot, but when they read the promises and when people talked about a personality change, it, a lot of good things happened in my life and I changed, but I honestly couldn't say I, I had this personality change and I had the promises were coming true. Um, and so I I was praying to God and um, a lot. some of my group were starting to go to AA Big Book Step Study Meetings, they called them, in my area. And they were just saying how um, that the emotional sobriety was awesome in there and, and how people really had this personality change. And so I started going. And at first I, I was really... Um, judging it and didn't, you know, <laughs> anytime the truth, I first don't like the truth. So I, uh, but after about six months, we were in, I, I distinctly remember it. We were in the We Agnostics chapter and they started reading again these, and I hadn't really done a lot with the big book. I mean, I read here and there my prayers on um, pages 84 to 88, you know, t- um, but they read these, um, bedevilments, and I, all of a sudden, my denial left, and I could see how um, I had these in my life. And so, at the time, I was 12 years abstinent. I had sponsees. I, um, the food was in order, but we were having trouble with personal relations. My husband wanted a divorce. Um, I wasn't um, speaking with one brother. And I was, I kept having conflict with um, my sister and my other brother, and we couldn't control our emotional natures. Sometimes the depression had come back in those 12 years, and I was put on an antidepressant, and I would withdraw from my husband when um, we got into a fight. I would just withdraw or leave. We were prey to misery and depression. Um, that withdrawing really, um, I, I was, I would be in sometimes in self pity, uh, and um, we couldn't make a living. I had a job, uh, but it was not fulfilling. Um, I was bored with it, and I didn't make a lot of money either, and that put a lot more stress on my husband. Um, I had a fe- We had a feeling of uselessness, and this is all in abstinence, by the way, and having sponsees and working the tools. I did work the tools um, every day. Um, we didn't, um, but we had a feeling of uselessness. To be honest, I, I wasn't getting, um, they were talking about oh, how they love sponsoring. My sponsoring became, because I was not working the steps myself, and I didn't know how to bring people through the steps. I only knew how to go to a group and work it with a group. And so I didn't really like sponsoring. It seemed like it was more like problem solving and taking someone's food. Um, and a lot of times sponsees weren't staying with me or they weren't getting abstinent. It wasn't working. Um, and maybe, you know, they weren't ready, but, but I did not, um, it, it wasn't being, I wasn't being effective as a sponsor. Um, I was, uh, full of fear. I had fear of changing my job, even though I wasn't happy with my job. I had fear of getting into conflict with my husband. Um, so I withdrew and I wouldn't bring up, um, issues. And I, I, um, and I wasn't a full partner because of my fear. I had fear of economic insecurity, but I didn't do anything about it. Um, we were unhappy. 
I forced myself to say, this is my big thing. I'm absent and grateful. I'm absent and grateful. But I was not happy at work. I was not happy with my husband. I remember um, complaining to my sponsor and a good friend all about um, how he's not understanding about my program and he is selfish and I was all um, into what he wasn't doing. We couldn't seem to be of any real help to other people. Again, I didn't. Um, I wasn't an effective sponsee, and I was creating problems in my family instead of helping them. So I uh, this motivated me when I heard this, and I thought, Judy, you need help. You need to um, to go through these steps. I immediately got a sponsor, and I I worked these steps like I. I, because I also thought sooner or later I'm going to pick up the food because I was that restless, irritable, and discontent. And um, I have to say, God changed my thinking, my point of view. It was unbelievable. And um, at another time I'll get into what happened in my marriage. But it, um, I saw through doing these steps, especially um, that four through nine, that, that came... Um, the, the transformation happened, my personality changed. So today, I have um, a wonderful, it's been 19 years of marriage, and it's like we're first married. Um, and we, um, we communicate well, uh, we're respectful, um, and we're, we're in love. People will be out, and people will say, um, are you guys dating? <laughs> because I think we're dating, and you know, it's, when you're dating, you're all in love. And um, I have, um, I have, so like I'm not having the personal relations problem. I, um, I don't have conflict with my sister and, um, and my brother and my brother who died um, three years ago that I wasn't speaking to because I had done amends. Um, we had a, a good relationship before he died. Um, and I'm controlling, um, and with the control of my emotional nature. Okay, so I'll, um, so these these are now manifesting. The promises are manifesting, and I just want to end with I have a um, a handout which compares the bedevilments and where they're replaced with the promises. And if anyone wants, um, I can give you my email address at the end and um, and send that to you. But with every bedevilment, there's a promise at the other side, and I have that has manifested in my life. Thank you, God, because of these 12 steps, as they're written in the big book, the directions, they work, and I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judy F. And just a reminder to everyone, please stay muted in respect of each speaker, and so we can have a quiet recording. Thank you so much. Let's continue in our text of the big book with our next speaker, Deb W. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. I'm Deb W. Recovered from Oklahoma. I'm going to read uh, or talk from page 62 of the big book, the first paragraph to the end of the page. Selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-pity, that we think is the root of our problem. So is the big book saying beyond our addiction of compulsive eating, Really, the problem is that I might be selfish, self-centered, and suffer from self-pity? How dare it? I don't see how this statement could be true, and what does it have to do with eating too much? I never would have thought that the bedevilments really applied to me. 
In fact, I got abstinent and sat in the rooms for 17 years thinking I had sort of mostly worked the steps and was an OA guru until life got too tough and I relapsed. I lived my life believing what people said about the part of me that I let them know. I am naive, quiet, and people take advantage of me. Debbie, you're just too good. But what was going on behind most actions that I took? What was the motive behind my behaviors? Usually I was trying to please so that you would like me, and then I would get silently angry because you didn't appreciate me. I would buy you gifts when I really didn't have any money, and then I would be afraid because I didn't have money to last until the next payday. I would argue a point with my husband until it ignited a fight because I just wanted him to understand me. Really, I knew I was right and he was wrong and I just wanted him to see he was wrong. I would come crying to my husband because I overspent and was worried about how we were going to make it, totally remorseful. Because I knew he didn't like me to cry, he would comfort me, tell me it's okay. Tell me that it's his fault because it's the man's job to provide for his family. If he hadn't made so many mistakes, he would have provided for us better. I would have the money to spend I would have the money to spend, he said. I spent years telling stories of my past in the OA rooms and in therapy. <clears throat> I did have a pretty horrific past and received compassion, understanding, and love from you. People in the rooms understood me, and we were bonded through our disease and woundedness. And that is where my share would end. After talks, people would come up to me and admire me. I can't believe you shared so honestly. They would ask, how did you get where you are today? Unconsciously, I didn't make room for the recovered part because they were so spellbound about my past, self-seeking and self-pity. Not realizing the story I shared had a continuation, years where I was no longer the victim, but a story of recovery to share, a story full of spiritual growth, working through my problems, and amazing relationships, including my husband's, uh, looking from for answers from God, the steps, and others, no longer living in the problem, but immediately looking for the solution, not looking back except to share my experience, strength, and hope. The AA 12 and 12, page 46 says, they can be told that the majority of AA members have suffered severely from self-justification during their drinking days. For most of us, self-justification was the maker of excuses. Excuses, of course, for drinking and for all kinds of crazy damaging conduct. We had made the invention of alibis of fine art. We had to drink because times were hard or times were good. We had to drink because at home we were smothered with love or got none at all. We had to drink because at work we were great successes or dismal failures. We had to drink because our nation had won a war or lost a peace. For us, we replaced drinking with continued eating until eating to sate the anger, fear, resentments in our life was such an automatic response we failed to even realize that we were doing it. We would be shocked and amazed when we were unable to fit in a dress, humiliated when our, doc our husband stopped paying us attention, ashamed when we finally got on a scale at the doctor's office to read the doctor's notes and see morbidly a beast giving us a reason to go immediately to the food for comfort. We were in denial of our body, looked at ourselves from the neck up, 
dressed the rest of ourselves out of the mirror. Didn't understand why our health was failing. Never even considered when we compared notes with others about illnesses and medications that some of these health issues were self-inflicted and could be resolved. Never occurs that compulsive eating that had reached the addiction level was the culprit. So many of us continue to sit in the rooms with that serenity and continue to talk about our health issues, never putting the two together. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate, sometimes hurting us, sometimes without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. It reminds me of when I retired and pulled down a healthy 401k. In my head was a continual buzzing of plans with what I was going to do with it. Determined decisions with good motives to pay off the mortgage and all the bills or even to buy a new home. Justification that we'd need a new home since we were retiring to live our last days in comfort. Wound up renovating our own house. It told, I told myself it was up to me to determine the things I felt needed repairing, replacing. I set up the plans with the contractors, mostly by myself, able to justify the action of leaving my husband out of the planning because over the years, he didn't place as much importance on things I felt important, plumbing, electrical, getting repaired. Justifiable, right? Besides, I had taken out many loans over the years to get us out of the scrape he made forgetting all about my rampant compulsive spending. I fixed an idea in my head, a self-justification that I was going to make sure, in other words, I would decide, well, actually, me and my trusted daughters would decide how to handle my money, to use it in the most effective way. I didn't care about penalties I received drawing the money out. I blew that off with the thought I wouldn't have had this money anyway. And as long as I had a vision that both me and my husband could benefit from, I was right. You see, I left God out of this. I remember stepping on my husband's feet so many times. At the repairs he made over the years on our little house, we laughed, poked fun, me and the contractors. He might even have overheard us laughing. I didn't care. My husband did the best he could to be the handyman but wasn't a professional, and I called his resentments being stubborn, not wanting to change, and I ignored his hurt, his bitterness toward me, because I felt he just wanted the money in his hands and would mess it up again. It never occurred to me that just because I had saved this money that, by the way, he shared in my ability to save it, and it was a horrible thing uh, that I would spend it, that it was a horrible thing that I would spend it without letting him in on the majority of decision-making or use some ideas of his that were outdated in my opinion and let him be a partner rather than reduce him to insignificance. God is more concerned with your attitude than your behavior, I've always heard. One of my most humbling, gut-riching amends came from those extreme examples of self-will run riot. Many of us lived moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them, even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. Just this last few weeks, I was in the position of being a trusted reliance by 
a family member in helping her prepare her mother's funeral. She had no experience. Mother died without insurance. This person had been the object of ridicule, both her and her mother, because of their selfishness, distancing themselves from the family, and because they were better than us. The mother most remembered for her rudeness and her confrontational. She had excluded herself, prided herself in not needing anybody, laying the same behaviors on the shoulders of her daughter, and once she died, her daughter was alone. I found myself in a triangle, self-inflicted, with her and other family members in trying to keep her request not to tell anyone else what she was doing to plan the funeral. I justified needing to gossip to others because I hadn't been around her and others had, and I didn't know how to interact with her. I laughed with them and gossiped all throughout the planning and feared one of them would break my confidence that I broke hers. How many times did I pray, please, God, stop me from the gossip? How many times did I happen to mention the favors I did for her to others out of a false sense of humility, refusing to accept their, you have been so good to her or she has taken advantage of you? I sincerely wanted to stop the gossiping and did not, even though I tried. To myself and others, criticizing because her because if she had used my ideas about the funeral in the first place, her mom would have been buried 17 days sooner, having to wait for her ideas not to pan out, for her to follow mine. Look at me. I was right all along. Control and ego. How many 10 steps did I have to do on that one? How would I ever be able to give up the sick, uncomfortable feelings inside coming from what I have learned in program? that are behind the defect. Mind you, I've put the food down, so it's the defect itself now. This is where the rubber hits the metal. What's behind the drug of choice? This is the place in the program where many don't see that the exercise of working the steps is really just getting started and it's a lifetime work, crucial, or we are back in the food due to the uncomfortable feelings, the guilt, the denial, the lies, the gossip, and the convictions for doing that behavior get to be so much that we default back to that sense of ease and comfort that comes from taking the first bite, relief, because it's an easier, softer way. It's really not. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch that w- which we passed to freedom. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you so much, Deb W. And now let's continue with our next speaker, Kathy Kay. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. Uh, this is Kathy Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Boston, and I'm very grateful to have an opportunity to share with you today. On step 11, um, the passage that I chose begins on page 85 uh, and goes through page um, 88. 
However, I am going to focus particularly on page 86 through 88, beginning with the paragraph on awakening, about halfway down the page on 86. Uh, Let me first say a couple things about why I chose this um, passage. Um, I came into program um, a, a strong agnostic, having lived uh, a good portion of my 45 years as an agnostic. Um, and when this book was presented to me, um, it, it says early on that the purpose of this book is to help us find a relationship with God, and um, as an agnostic, it was very difficult for me to identify with that quest, Um, and it was only through reading the big book and beginning to identify um, with the stories and the struggles that I began to see that there was something there that I needed to explore. Um, Over the course of working Uh, the first nine steps, I became very aware of my disease and the twisted thinking that led to uh, destructive actions towards myself and towards others and how powerless I was over uh, who I was. Um, The step 11 provided me with what some sometimes called a blueprint for living. Um, Sorry, I forgot. Okay. A blueprint for living one day at a time. So uh, whereas I had lived my life um, trying to control not only the present but also the future, um, the big book was asking me, Uh, to stay in the day and to develop a relationship with a higher power um, that could provide me with guidance on how to live just today, how to live um, in abstinence and sobriety, how to live in service, how to live in honesty, and uh, all the other principles that are associated with the 12 Steps. When I came to this program, I didn't have a clue how to do that. And it wasn't until my sponsor um, pointed me to these pages, which she did long before I reached the 11th step, because she, I think, saw that I really did not know how to develop a relationship with a higher power since I was Uh, had lived in such self-sufficiency all my life. So if we begin on page 86, on awakening, it says, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Um, This is what uh, I was guided to do, and having completed a fourth and fifth step, I understood my dishonesty and my self-seeking motives and my fear underlying everything uh, quite well. And so when I 
began to practice this on a daily basis, I um, saw that it immediately set the stage for me to be God-reliant rather than self-reliant. I knew I was powerless over these reactions, and I had been told to ask my higher power as I wrote my fourth step that early in my recovery uh, to guide my writing so that I could be honest and open and face my truth. Now, the second half of this paragraph uh, are promises of the 11th step. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. You know, I I um, read those promises. I did not experience them right away. It took time. But my commitment to recovery had me practicing every single day um, this paragraph. I would start my day in prayer and meditation. Uh, I used prayers from the big book. It also says later in the section that we can use religious prayers that we've learned through our religious affiliations. Because I was an agnostic, I didn't have those. And so I used the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and the serenity prayer. And those created an opportunity for me to then listen um, and to um, hear guidance in a way that I had never done before. It says that in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. Well, I must tell you that even today, but certainly when I began this journey, I woke up every single day with indecision. I didn't know how to approach situations at work. I didn't know how to deal with issues in my marriage. Um, I found such comfort in bringing these challenges to God and simply asking that he show me the way. I learned a very simple prayer. God, please show me the next right action to take. Um, The promise Again, at the end of this paragraph, we are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually became, becomes a working part of the mind. And then towards the end of that paragraph, nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration we come to rely upon it. And do you know now after it's been about five years of seeing what's in these two pages on a daily basis, I can discern what's God's will for me from what my will is. I know the ideas that come to me which are loving, patient, kind, and filled with wisdom are God's direction. And the ideas that are filled with worry and a desire to control and judgment 
of myself or others. Those are my my own thoughts and self-reliance. And so with practicing this on a daily basis, the promise of over time receiving more inspiration has come to pass. Uh, the next paragraph, uh, we conclude with meditation. Uh, we listen and we are careful not to make requests for ourselves only. The next paragraph, I want to make sure I get to the last paragraph, but this next one, it's, if circumstances warrant, here uh, it suggests we could invite others into our daily prayer time um, or we can consult our religious guides and the resources that they have to offer. Um, this last part on page 87 is perhaps the most impactful paragraph um, of all. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful, and we ask for the right thought or action. Um, I didn't learn this right away. I would pray in the morning uh, for the first few years, and then I'd forget about God for the rest of the day. And when we studied this paragraph, I, I finally came to see that at any point in my day, at the first sign of discomfort, I could pause and I could listen and I could ask God to show me the night right, next right action. Um, we constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show, humbly asking saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done. And so I have found myself um, for um, many years now uh, practicing this throughout my day. I just returned from a trip to Europe, uh, which has many challenges and joys. Uh, a big challenge was the food, uh, being part of a tour and finding it difficult to get exactly what I needed. And I had to pause at every meal and ask God to show me the way. Um, just as one small example of how this practice enables me to face many challenging situations that we all face. The promise, we are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. My goodness, how I spent all of my waking hours in these feelings before I became recovered. And today, they are so much exceptions. Uh, they do happen, but today, I know what to do. I can pause and I can ask God to show me uh, his will for me and what right next action I need to take. The next promise, we become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. We are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. So when I first um, started my way through the big book, my sponsor suggested I read pages 84 to 88 every day 
to start my day. And it really is a blueprint for living. I continue to do this every day. And when I find myself straying a bit from my spiritual practice, which certainly happened to me while I was traveling, uh, I came back to these pages, and they provided such comfort and wisdom and direction um, that I know they are the blueprint for living that I needed and that I now have. Um, I will just point out that the last part of Step 11 is the paragraph on page 86. The way it's laid out here, it's actually uh, following step 10, which is our daily inventory as we go through the day. This paragraph, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day and ask, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? This discipline um, prepares me for the next morning. It helps me to put a close to my day and to identify what it is I need to bring to God um, and what I, where I need help from Him when I begin the next day. So um, just to close, um, I am forever grateful to have been uh, given... Um, these instructions and to have been given to them to me early in my recovery because they helped me uh, begin to develop a spiritual practice that includes prayer and meditation every day, first thing in the morning, throughout my day at the first sign of discomfort, and then in the evening with a review that um, not only allows me to sleep without worry, but to begin anew the following morning in conversation with God. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Kathy Kay. And now we'll hear from our next speaker, Penny C. Hi, good morning, Leah. Good morning, everybody on the line. And I just want to say that um, I'm so grateful to have um, received this invitation to speak this morning. It took me about 15 seconds, if that, to decide what I wanted to talk about, what paragraphs or what part of the big book um, spoke to me most at this time in my life. And um, it, it's, I'm going to uh, just read the two paragraphs I want to share on, and that's the first two opening paragraphs in the chapter, Working with Others, on page 89, if you uh, want to follow. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity for drinking as intensive work without the other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on a new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanished, to see a fellowship grow up about you. This is an experience you, to have a host of friends this is an experience you must not miss. 
We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Um, I, I just love love reading that. I love quoting that. And I love the truth of it, that the bright spot of my life is talking with and and relating and in some cases hopefully being able to inspire with the hope that I have from my many years of recovery. And so I'll go back to the first paragraph where it says, you can help when no one else can. What a responsibility. That's the first thing I think of. And then I think about how all my doc past, and, and there's quotes from the big book that says, one of them is, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others, you can avert death and misery for them. So if I have the experience that nobody else has, not psychiatrists, the most competent psychiatrists, unless they have my addiction, my compulsive overeating um, or food, food disorders, not one of them truly can understand as those of us who have the disease, who have worked the steps, who are recovered and can share not only our dark past, but the hope that they, like us, can get to the point of recovery that I enjoy and so many others on this line talk about. So it's, it's essential for me to work with others because nothing, nothing will ensure immunity so much from, from a, a slip or a, a, a relapse than working with others. And I feel it every time I speak with another compulsive overeater, especially when I get calls. And I, I know that um, at least they, they tell me that just some little thing that I share from my past and, and what I know today about the hope and the dependence on a higher power, what it can do for us, I get, I get just a burst of of gratitude, as someone I know says, a gratitude attack. Because, you know, it turns the the things that used to humiliate me and shame me now are so valuable because I can give those away to somebody else and perhaps avert misery or even death for others. So I want to go on to that second paragraph that I spoke of and read, Life will take on a new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others. All of this, I, I enjoy all of this. And, and this is an experience you must not miss. I am so, so grateful that I haven't missed this because for me to be able to share my experience um, is, is such a joy and especially my spiritual experience. When I talk about how I came to these rooms with um, a set of religious rules that I followed 
so, so rigidly. And I thought, I looked at those steps in the room I was in. There was a banner, and there were the steps. And I looked at them and said, "Mm -hmm, no problem there. I got the first three steps down. Okay, how do I do step four? And then when they told me what I had to do for step four, I went, what are you kidding? You told me if I came here, people told me if I came here, I was going to feel better. My life was going to be better. I was going to change. I would find a solution for my disease. That word disease really helped me to know that I wasn't just, you know, lazy or had no willpower or I was a bad person. No, I had a disease. So so step four was a challenge for me. But those three first three steps, I had it made. And then to be in these rooms and get what they say you must not miss, I, I, I saw that the religious um, concepts and, and rules that I had internalized and followed to the, to the nines did not get me a relationship with my higher power that I have today. It was only the 12 steps. It was only in finally saying, realizing that I had to put away those concepts that I had about having it made because I had all that that religious upbringing and, 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 you know, and humble myself to a sponsor, to this book, to the people I spoke with, especially when I was able to call into this meeting and get a spiritual experience that I can relate and I can help others with. Because I could tell them all about my dark past and 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 all they could relate and we could we could stay there in 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 our problems. But I learned that and I'm gonna quote something that I've heard people say on on this line that we don't tell our problems we don't tell god how big our problems are we tell our higher power how big our god is we tell our problems i got that mixed up but you get it you know what i mean we tell our problems how big our god is and i can tell other people what i went through and they relate most of the time we can you know, we're shaking our heads. Yes, we know just what you're talking about, Penny. So um, we don't want to miss it. Please, you know, it, it, the big book often says we beg you. I beg you not to miss it because every time I talk to someone else, I try to remember to say thank you. Thank you for calling because you just helped me to stay in recovery because if I didn't have contact with people like you, then I would I would be back into that same depressed, binging, miserable person that I brought to these rooms. I was I was in a not not in a state of of hope hopefulness, but I was definitely in the seemingly state of of hopelessness when I came. So I have a few other quotes that I'd like to go back to the big book and share with you before I before I end. Um, in in the the ninth step promises, it says we shall see how our experience can benefit others. 
when I first heard those promises, I thought, who wants to know about about my experience? But that was before I had um, gone through all the steps and really, really believe that my what I have to share is is valuable. And then on um, in Dr. Bob's nightmare, and and anybody who knows me know that Dr. Bob and I are kindred spirits. Um, and he, it says, he, referring to Bill Wilson, was the first living human with whom I, Dr. Bob, had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. And that's what we do. We share with other people our actual experience. I'm not reading from a book. I'm not telling other people's experiences, although maybe sometimes that might help someone else too. But mostly I share from my own um, dark past, and, and, and it was dark. I'm not the same person that I brought into this. It's been a 360-degree change. You know, we, we have to surrender ourselves and and um and, and become a new new person my attitudes um my beliefs my i i i never got i hear people say well i had to fire my god and get a new one that's not the way i think i think that god never changes my my higher power and i do i do call my higher power god my higher power god was always perfect and so I didn't have to find another higher power. I just had to change my concept of what I believe that higher power to be. And today that higher power, and to put it in, in common language, has my back, is, is constantly protecting me and, and, you know, carving out the path of greatest joy and, and usefulness for me to my fellows. So, um, you know, don't miss it. That's just what it says. You know, um, get, get if, if you're not already recovered, work, work the steps, study the steps, and most importantly, practice the steps. Do them. And, and get to the point where, where you can be a guide for someone else because that I'm just going to going to go back to these words again it says what to watch people recover when i hear people at face to face meetings especially and i and i've worked with them and i go oh my gosh that is that the same person who used to complain about her mother constantly and now talks about she cried when when the two of them had to part company because she loves her and she has such a wonderful relationship with her. So to watch people recover, to see them go out and help others, to watch loneliness vanish, mine and theirs, to see a fellowship grow up about you. And uh, I, I, most of my friends are 12-step members. Um, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. Miss, you must not miss it. And I so appreciate all of your 
attention and and uh, listening and um and I wish uh, an abstinent God-filled day for everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much, Penny C. And our final speaker this morning is Sarah W. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service today. I, too, feel very honored to have been asked to uh, share on the line. Um, And, you know, um, I love the whole big book, so when I was thinking about what I would share on, um, and, you know, um, the previous speaker kind of alluded to the importance of page 124, which is um, in the family afterwards, And so I'm going to build on that, but I'd like to uh, share those two particular um, paragraphs uh, that have such meaning for me and then share about why they do. Um, Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Uh, And the other paragraph, the other uh, two sentences are, we grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. So just a little... Um, a little bit about my background. Um, uh, I always felt that I was an unwanted child and I didn't really know how to love and how to be loved. And my thought was always, how can I make you love me? My children uh, even were there for them to love me. That was my sick thinking. Um, and um, spouses, which I've been married numerous times, were also there to to love me, to be there for me. And um, when it talks about the alcoholic being like a tornado, um, that was me, um, demanding, uh, angry, wounded. That woundedness that I had came out in ways that either I put up a wall or I was physically or verbally abusive with my husbands and children. Um, And for me, and I think this is a really important thing for me to say out loud, and it's been so helpful for me, my husband and I have a, um, a plaque in our house, and it says, forgiveness is letting go of the hope for a better past. I cannot change it. It is what it is. And how can I bring my best self into life that I can offer people and the world something that I have that's a gift that was given to me instead of sitting and feeling sorry for myself and morbid reflection? So I'd like to start on page 19 uh, because it will kind of tie this together. Um, And I'm... I may kind of go a little slow because I'm going through the pages. Um, It says on page 19, we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. 
So it says a few things in here that are very important for me to notice. Um, and for me, um, yes, it is extremely important that I become abstinent, that I put down the substance or behaviors that I've been using. But a more important demonstration of the principles, and I would like to tell you what those principles are so we can uh, focus on those during the time that I'm talking. The principle of the first step is honesty. The principle of the second step is hope. The principle of the third step is faith. The principle of the fourth step is courage. The fifth step is integrity. The sixth step is willingness. The seventh step is humility. The eighth step is brotherly love. The ninth step is justice. Tenth step is perseverance. The eleventh step is spiritual awareness. And the twelfth step is service. So um, this is what I need to practice in my home. Um, or, or, as it says on page 82, and I'd like to go there at this point, um, or it says, and I used to read this, I would start on page 82 and read through 88. That was what I did early in my recovery, and at times I still do that. It says, the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. And here is the part that I'd like to focus on in this particular page. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. Uh, this speaks of emotional sobriety, of my thinking of how I'm affecting other people in my home. To be honest with you, when I came into recovery, I was so overjoyed to finally find my people, <laughs> to really kind of feel a part of something. Because as a little adopted girl, I never felt a part of anything. So I, I threw myself into recovery to such an extreme that I ignored my children and my family at home. And it created a lot of havoc and a lot of anger. Of course, there was, always, there was already a lot of dysfunction. They became jealous and insecure, and I really neglected. I neglected my children. When I came in in 1995, my daughter, um, she, she was born in 1976, so figure out the math there, uh, and my son was born in 1980, so he was 15, and, and I was not available to them at all, at all. Um, and so... Today, what I see on page 83, it says, yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill. And so this is really about um, living amends that I need to continue to make, but not go into remorse and morbid reflection. I think that's a really important piece of this. So it says, we clean house with the family. This is a beautiful prayer that we can say in the morning, and it's been so instrumental for me. Uh, so we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. This is how I'm going to respond from now on. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. And then just a little further down, there may be some wrongs that we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would right them if we could. 
you know, my daughter is almost 40, and she has a lot of anger towards me still. And I came in, as I said, in 1995, and I've tried to live this life for a long time, being a loving, kind parent. But I have to say this, that if I don't keep boundaries and take care, practice self-care myself, I can't be there for anybody. I must put on my own oxygen mask. Otherwise, how can I be available to anyone? And if someone is abusive to me, you know, it talks about it in the book. We are not scraping. We don't, we don't lower ourselves and let people step on us and continually be abusive to us. So I'd like to now go to, um, let's see, um, page 87. And Bill is offering us the idea that I can now uh, practice, um, if, if my family is open to it, uh, morning meditation. And I have done this with my husband where we have prayed together. We don't do it consistently. And I have to be respectful of what my husband wants to and, or my children want to and are willing to accept as far as my spirituality and not shove it down people's throats. Um, that's one of the most important things that I need to, to practice is, is respect in the home. Um, I'd like to go to page 122, uh, which is the beginning of the family afterwards, um, and where it says, all members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. So, you know, what is this process of deflation? It's reducing my self-centered concerns. Uh, that means that I have to, that what I would like to do and what I pray that God helps me do, that my higher power helps me do, is how can I be um, of service to others? How can I be useful? How can I um, express my, my gratitude for them? And to me, one of the biggest ways is the idea that I accept them for who they are. And let me tell you, I don't do it perfectly. Um, with, with grandchildren that I've raised as teenagers, very difficult to do at times, you know, the anger. But I can't take it personally, and that's one of the things that helps me so much. So um, it says cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained, abnormal condition. I have to remember that this continues for a lifetime. You know, we don't get done with this process. This is an ever-present um, um, thought process and um, prayer in our life that we can be the person that God would have us be. Um, I'd like to uh, also talk about on page 23 where it says, suppose we suggest, uh, it's talking about the obstacles a family will meet. And, and in this chapter, he's talking about ways that we can um, avert or avoid um, conflict that is not constructive. And the thing I have to think in my heart is that not everybody's in the same place as me. And, and again, I have to continue to look at uh, allow people to be who they are without thinking that I can mold them into who I think they should be. Um, I'd like to go to page 126 now where it talks about um, having been, it says, um, having been neglected 
and misused in the past, they think father or mother owes them more than they are getting. You know, this is so true for me, and I can see it. And at the same time, I have to be cautious not to overcompensate and say yes to everything or not take ownership of my own needs in healthy ways. Um, and, and, of course, it talks about, um, you know, uh, our, our communication and it's little use to argue. Um, this really is such an important piece of how we can learn to get along in our family life. And if we're living two separate lives, which is what I did for a long time, in recovery I lived one life and then at home I was a totally different person. I have to have that um, in harmony. Otherwise, I'm not living God's will. And I'm going to always feel conflicted about myself. So um, it talks about on page um, 127 that drinking wrought all kinds of damage and may take a long time to repair. Uh, that, you know, the, the period... Um, the, the people that we live with uh, will notice periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is love, tolerance, and spiritual understanding. And that is what I need to focus on. How can I offer tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding? And then um, a little further down, it talks about, since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. Um, he is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. And for me, this has a lot to do with keeping balance. And balance has to do with how many sponsees I take on, am I being respectful with, with being on the phone when I'm with my family, which if you ask my husband, he would say I'm on the phone quite a bit. But I really try, you know, he's asked me, please don't use the phone when we're in the car together. At times I do, but most of the time I try not to. I, I try to be respectful of other people, and I try to keep very clear uh, communication with him. You know, how are you doing? How do you feel about what's going on? Are you having any, any thoughts about this? And that's that's really very new behavior. This is not how I learned to communicate growing up. Um, so in going down a little ways, um, I have to remind myself that I have to, like I said, practice self-care, so acknowledge my own needs and not ignore them, and that's not selfish. And I have to also have boundaries with people because then I'm not going to feel resentful, and then I have more to give. So on page 129, it talks about two things. It says, if the family cooperates, Dad will soon see that he is suffering from a distortion of value. He will perceive that his spiritual growth is lopsided, that for an average man like himself, a spiritual life which does not include his family obligations may not be so perfect after all. I think I've kind of beat this like, you know, uh, to death, but, you know, really the reality is that I really have to be aware that I have responsibilities to my family. And what does that mean? And discern how much time I can spend in the rooms, how much time I can spend with sponsees, how much time I should be spending. You know, if I'm, 
if I'm not, you know, I have a grandson that's still at home. If I'm not taking some time with him and with my husband, what is my recovery? I mean, I have to have those commitments to my family uh, be a huge part of my um, my life and, and value them. And just like, you know, it takes a lot of time for me to have a relationship with my higher power through prayer and meditation, it takes time to have a relationship with the people that are in my home. So at the last, uh, you know, the other part of this uh, uh, page on page 129, it says, instead of treating the family as he should, he may retreat further into himself and feel he has spiritual justification for doing so. Uh, you know, I really need to be cautious with this. You know, my husband is also in recovery, so I have to allow allow other people to have their space and what they need to do for themselves. And, you know, just like I said, checking in and, and being um, honest and at the same time not brutally honest. You know, say what I mean, mean what I say, but not say it mean. Um, and then, you know, the the um, on page 130 where it says, we have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. That has been my experience so much. Uh, I'm so grateful uh, that I have a higher power that that walks with me through everything in life, that I never feel alone. Um, and... Um, I'm almost done here. Let's see. On 133, it says, and I love this. This is such a beautiful part of our book. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. It is so true. There is joy and there is pain in recovery, but with the steps and with you, and, of course, the most important, you know, as many of you know, I'm going through, um, you know, treatment for cancer and we'll have radiation. But, you know, I have such a good life, and I live it one day at a time, and I'm so grateful for that. And the last thing I wanted to say was on page 135 where it speaks about our beautiful mottos um, that say, first things first, live and let live, and easy does it. And those three things can be so helpful in how we treat the pa- the people that we live with, how we treat ourselves, and, of course, that beautiful motto, one day at a time. And thank you so much for letting me share them with that I pass. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much, Sarah W. And, of course, thank you to all the speakers this morning. Thank you for your service today. Thanks for sharing your experience and personal insights with all of us this morning. We appreciate your service. Let's close now from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit 
and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.